Hi there, this is Stuart McKee, host of Musicians FAQ Podcast. Please join me weekly where we have music and chat with some of Canada's hottest artists. Automatic Blues by Kitchener's own Fog Blues and Brass Band from their 2018 album, Into the Fog, featuring Hills Walter, who's also our very special guest today. My name is Stuart McKee, and this is Musicians FAQ. Excited to introduce our guest this week. He's been on the music scene for over 30 years. He's now the lead singer, songwriter, frontman for Fog Blues and Brass Band. Welcome to the show, Hills Walter. Hi, hey. Stu. How are you? Good, Hills. How are you doing, man? Good. All right. Well, thanks for doing this. This is great. I'm excited to have you on here. It's our first show um, since Steve Todd has left, and I'm going to be then the new host going forward. So, want to kind of jump right into things and we'll get right back sort of to the start of it all where were you born well I was born here in uh, Kitchener St. Mary's Hospital actually and uh, after my birth traveled basically around the world with my father's education and uh, ended up back here about nine years later <laughs> That's awesome. full circle moment full circle moment so what what sort of traveling places did you see well uh, my father did studies down in uh, Madison, Wisconsin. So we moved down to Madison, Wisconsin while he did his schooling there. And then he wanted to advance his education. So he went on to England and um, did some studies at Oxford. And he also did some studies at the University of London. Um, and then 
we came back to Canada after he had done a small uh, Eastern tour to educate himself a little bit more and moved to Sudbury, Ontario, (laughs) which was pretty, pretty drastic. (laughs) From London, England to Sudbury, Ontario. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. Yeah. My dad traveled around a lot for work as well. Oddly enough, Madison, Wisconsin was a place that we'd went on a, a trip a couple of years ago. We did a, a trip out west with the family and we stayed over in Madison. But we ended up extending another day because it was just so beautiful. We ended yeah. up we were in the campus right by the water. I thought that's where I should have gone to school, man. <laughs> yeah, it was a wonderful place to, uh, you know, spend about five years of childhood. That's for sure. <laughs> like that. So now, is anybody else in your family musical? Yeah, well, my mother and father were both uh, good singers, you know. Um, My father's mother was in the theatre in London, England, as he was growing up. So there was a lot of theatre in his life uh, until he came to Canada, and then he sort of became a Bushman. But, um, yeah, there was a the music afterwards from that point on was basically in the church, you know. And that's where I started out as well. I started out singing in Cambridge under Eric Dudney, who was uh, the choir's headmaster at uh, the Anglican Church in Cambridge. And um, that's how I began singing. That's awesome. I mean, some, of, some of the absolute greatest singers have come from the church. And I guess that kind of makes sense. That, I mean, there's certainly some gospel overtones in the blues and, and things that you're doing today that probably have carried through. So um that's fantastic so what got you into music yourself well I it was always around me I mean when we were in England my aunt uh was um involved with uh, Pat LaBarbera and that gave me the opportunity to see jazz in its truest form when I was about seven years of age um I also spent a lot of time sneaking downstairs to get uh, into top of the pops so that uh, I could keep current with the bands at the time, which uh, I don't think anyone my age even knew the names of Edgar Winter and people like that one when I was young, you know. No, Um, And then when I came back to Canada from England, uh, my father bought an album that I don't even know if he knew what it was but it was a KTEL album and it had oh all kinds of artists on it. Elton John uh, Five Man Electric Band Tony Orlando uh, just just a whole whack of really wonderful songs and I think that's when I got hooked on that rock and roll you know yeah that <laughs> it was, was well I mean the 70s were a great period and those KTEL records I mean they were really some of the formative things for me as well there's some really great songs on there I mean I wish I'd kind of kept some of those in my collection. I don't know if there's something you can probably find these days, but uh, yeah, I mean, just really, really great stuff there.
from 1997, that was Forever Ties You In by The Seeds of Eden, featuring Hills Walter on lead vocals. So, so what, um, what sort of song inspired you first? I mean, what was the real song that you kind of went, okay, this is that, I got to get into music, I want to be a singer. Or did you okay, even well, know you could sing at that age? You know, the, the first thing I ever really got hooked on was Elvis Presley, but I never bought an Elvis Presley album. You know, I had watched all of his movies. Uh, the first album that I ever bought, um, I made money from my paper route and I bought Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. And I was, I was really taken by the lyrics of that album. You know, the lyrics, the songwriting, um, it was a masterpiece. You know, so I fell into pretty much everything Elton John recorded at that time in my life. And uh, I went and got Empty Skies. I went and bought Tumbleweed Connection. I bought Friends. I bought, you know, as soon as I could make money, I would buy more Elton John. Right. You know, that was that was that was uh, my first artist. And I, I would truly say that that was my vocal coach, to be honest. Because I had to learn everything that he sang. It was it was important, more so than Elvis. Elvis I had spent a long time trying to do, but that was more dancing around, trying to, you know, be a crooner type character. But yeah. but Elton John was my was my you know go-to for learning, you know. Well, that's really interesting. It it was a similar path for me. I mean, I, I was in love with Elvis very early on. Uh a buddy of mine, his mother had quite an Elvis collection, 45s and LPs. And, you know, we'd sneak in uh, when she was outside and, and, and play her records and we'd always get in crap for it. But I mean, we'd same thing. We'd just be dancing around the room and actually um, memory serves. I mean, there was an opportunity. Uh, I don't know how real it was, but he had told me that uh, they were going down to see Elvis Presley at the convention center in Niagara Falls and that they had an extra ticket if I wanted to go. But my mom was like, no, absolutely not. I mean, I think at the time, I don't know if it was money or just, me going down there across the border with uh, with some neighbors or what it was. I think the ticket was only like six dollars, but uh, broke my heart. I'm like, man, I get to see Elvis. No, I do that to. But then it was Elton John. I mean, I I can remember digging up an old letter I sent somebody and, and telling them, and a pen pal from a friend in Michigan so I said we had moved around a lot as well and said, you know, my favorite singer is Elton John. My favorite band is Kiss. <laughs> it was pretty extreme, but yeah, goodbye to Yellow Brick Road. I mean, that's just an absolute masterpiece and it still holds up to date and the lyrics unbelievable um yeah it sure it sure was you know the one that got me the most was empty skies right and that one um connected me to music more than anything so i have to say yellow brick road was all lyrics that really caught me right and and good melody right but but empty skies when it came to the music that was in the background was just mind-blowing and then of course there was honky chateau and Holy cow, you, you, I go back to that every once in a while just to hear how the bass and the drums connect and the vocal. Like you can listen to like mellow and you can hear the actual instruments just interlocking. The kick will finish off a line of a bass line and the guitar is almost non existent. And then all of a sudden it pops out of the blue and the keyboards are fantastic. I mean, that's, I'd love to be able to engineer like that, you know? Yeah, yeah <laughs> was, those, those are a billion times. I mean, that was groundbreaking stuff. And I mean, was that Glenn Johns or Gus Dudgeon that was involved with some of that, I think, or you can't remember who that. I think I, Glenn Johns was around. You know what? I'd have to grab the album to take a look at who produced that one. I'm not I remember positive. watching a, a, a biography recently, which I had seen as a kid, um, excerpts from it. And I saw it more recently, the making of Goodbye to Yellowbrook Road. And, I mean, they all lived in the big house and hung out together every day. And it was just kind of a, you know, very methodical. Bernie would come in with some lyrics. Elton would sit down after breakfast and start kind of playing around and come up with a tune. And then the band would all kind of come up with their parts. And it was just unbelievable. I mean, such a great system of people and, and such collaboration. It was really, really inc incredibly inspiring. I mean, and, and playing like a band, I mean, which probably we don't see as much these days. So. Um, which yeah. is why I love watching Fog. Oh, that's great. <laughs> Glad you do. That's awesome. So now what about bands and things like that? Were there were there particular bands that influenced you? Um, 
you know, when I got into high school, I started falling into a bunch of bands. Um, I think attitude became pretty important to me. So um, when Teenage Head came out, I was pretty driven by that. I really liked how Frankie Venom, you know, delivered that attitude. And it was it was spectacular, you know. Yeah. It, there was a point there where you, I think Teenage Head would have got humongous, like really, really big if people didn't destroy stadiums. <laughs> you know, that really was what, what uh, I think put a damper on the band, you know, people got driven that much, you know. Right. So Teenage Head was a real connection in high school. Of course, all of the music that I would play at the sock hops because I got into DJing. Um, I loved everything from Zeppelin to, to, um, you know, boy, George, even, you know, music doesn't even, it never stops for me 24 seven. You can go country, Western jazz, whatever. And I'll listen to it all. I love it. (laughs) And I think that's probably been apparent in your career. I mean, I'm, I have some familiarity with some of the the earlier stuff and I've seen some things that you've posted on Facebook and I I always get a kick out of them going, wow, I mean, is there any kind of band or or type of music that this guy hasn't played? (laughs) Well, I have to, I have to dabble in everything. I mean, Bowie was a huge, huge influence as well uh, in high school. So, so I really, really got into uh, the spiders from Mars, um, album like the Ziggy Stardust and I actually went out and bought it in 24 karat gold recorded in 24 bit and and um yeah there's there's albums that will stay with me for the rest of my life and you know anything Elton did anything David Bowie did um I I loved listening to certain things that Ronnie James Dio did just simply because of the vocals um Deep Purple uh, there you just fall in to a good solid rock bass that had a blues background. Yeah. And I never, I never understood the blues background until later on, you know? Right. 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 Yeah. It's similar. I can relate. I mean, I, I just knew I loved the stuff. I mean, I might trace back and realize that Chuck Berry was some influence. It wasn't until I got older that I started really getting into the Willie Dixon, the BB Kings and the Muddy Waters and Buddy Guys and starting to realize, you know, where a lot of this music had come from. Um, yeah, but at the time it just rocked. It. I didn't know then, but that was the start, and that's why. Things the way I do. 
That was Living the Blues back in 1997 by the band The Jam Blasters, once again featuring the lead vocals of Hills Walter. What was the first instrument that you picked up? Oh, that's a, that's an interesting question. I, uh, my father had a Goya um, in a closet and I used to, you know, try and sneak it out until finally one day he decided I didn't, you know, as long as I wouldn't bang it against tables and stuff like that, as I was walking around <laughs> with it, you know, he, he, he actually handed it to me and, and I actually have recordings that he made on an old reel to reel. Um, I think it's a, I think it's an old Sony green, green um quarter inch tape um that he did <laughs> he he actually came and set it up while i was playing his guitar and that was my first uh experience of recording oh, man. you know so he he waited until i had finished with the guitar and put it aside and and then he said hey check this out me and he put the tape on and i was like oh, what that's amazing you know <laughs> what is that you know and of course, that was not for me to play with. <laughs> so it was like dangling a carrot in front of a, in front, you know. But I mean, I was only like six or seven, I think, when he first did that. Damn, that's that's incredible. That, yeah, that's young. Uh, yeah, I think I had a little plastic guitar at that age. I don't think I was doing any recording until my probably my early teen years, at least, or pre-teens. But uh... yeah, the fun was I didn't even know I was recording. Right. <laughs> so, so that was interesting. I actually found that recording. Um, I'll have to see if I can dig it up for you. But yeah, uh, yeah. To hear. it's always a kick to go back and listen to some of that stuff. And so, I mean, on that note, when did like so? When did you actually start recording? When did you start writing songs? When did you realize that was something you wanted to do? Well, that's another good question because um, we we living in the country we we started recording with like a little cassette deck right and we used to um hang out in our rooms a lot with our friends you know so you could get away from the rest of the family and stuff like that so we started with like a little uh cassette deck thing and a little microphone and yeah. and um we we started um like, like i just had a couple friends that were really into goofing around so we'd we'd play uh, buckets and and uh, one of my friends was a very talented um, guitar player really early on um, in the name of Steve Offner and he he would come and bring his guitar so he was really the musician on all of the little recordings we'd make on these uh, the, the little cassette decks and um, we realized that we couldn't get a very stereophonic sound obviously so we would work on making reverb sounds with the buckets that we had or you know getting the sticks to you know double tapping instead of like just doing a tap in order to get sort of that tat tat sound to get an echo yeah and and we'd work pretty hard on making it sound more stereophonic right we, we were pretty crazy kids uh i remember actually setting the mic um on the wall and going out into the hallway and yelling and screaming and singing sort of thing to to get weird echoey sounds on that little cassette deck so that's how we started oh, you know cool. yeah it's it's neat i mean i think as, when you're younger you just don't know that there's any rules so you're just free to kind of experiment and do stuff and i think you know that's the challenge as you get older and, and people tell you it's got to be this way and this has got to be that way and then you look at some of the the brilliant people that you mentioned like Bowie for sure as being one of the innovators and one of the pioneers of, you know, and influencers, it's, you know, how do you kind of stop yourself from sounding like everybody else and doing everything that everybody else is doing and, and try to develop your own unique sound. So how old were you at, at that age? Oh, geez. I was, I was probably in around uh, 12, you know, like 11, 12. Um, and right up until we got to high school, Steve and I, uh, we were basically, you know, messing around uh, with music however we could. You know, we, we really got into the acoustic at the river. We'd write songs. Um, and uh, eventually, we, it was Steve, I think, that actually got us into our first studio session. But before that, before that happened, I was hired by... Uh, riley waters to do 
an album with him. Um, so my first experience at a semi-professional studio was The Gate with, um, with Gary Mundell and with Riley Waters doing Skeeks in the Jazz Jam. Okay. And that was pretty interesting because um, I never met uh, Ray, the, the, there was a trumpet trumpeter and a saxophone player. I never met them. They played with the Lulu's Roadhouse band. I don't even know their names. Yeah. Ray, and, Ray Podhornick and Dave Whiffen. Is that? Yeah. Uh, th- that rings a bell. I, I think that might be the names, but <laughs> I would do vocals um, after work, run down and do the vocals on these tracks with a piece of paper with no guidance whatsoever. And um, Lee would be off driving a cab in Guelph and uh gary would phone lee and say we need more lyrics <laughs> and and lee would say back no you don't understand the lyrics fit the actual melody and uh gary would say not anymore <laughs> and, 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 uh, and that was funny because lee would say okay i gotta log off here i'm coming down to the studio and he'd drive all the way from guelph to kitchener he'd come back and he'd go downstairs he'd say now i'm gonna show you how to sing this and then gary would say just listen and he'd push the button and then <laughs> you could see his face go we got to write more music. <laughs> he just really dug the way he really gave me total freedom, oh, you know, cool. and, and um, we were, we, we were sitting there listening to recordings that had a very Led Zeppelin-ish feel with horns, wow. you know, it's an interesting and combination. It was kind of interesting. And the horn players never met him. They come in at like, I don't know, three in the morning after doing a Lulu's gig and they just blow horns on on the stuff and party a bit as far as i know you know and when we heard the stuff later on it was um it was pretty ingenious you know it was pretty cool
You've been listening to Hills Walter's song, The Criminal, from 1986. Now, do you have any of those old recordings of it? I do, but the tape sound on them is, um, it's kind of horrendous. It's a, yeah. <laughs> the, you can hear the song. And I've thought maybe I should go back and revisit some of those songs um, with, um, with Fog, you know. Uh, but that's, you know, for later on down the line. I have to, right. have to work that out if we were going to do that, you know. So many songs, so much music, so little time, right? Oh yeah, we've got. Uh, there's there's a storybook of of music, you know. So were you still in high school at that time, or was this later? Or was that... this was just after I got out of high school? So in high school, if we backtrack a little bit, my first rock and roll band was a band called Desmond Hall, and um, that was put together by Andy Gingrich. And I um, I don't know if I even was thinking about getting involved with a band at that time. I just thought I've got to be out of school before I can get involved with a band. Sure. And um, Andy kind of made that a reality because his parents were crazy and they allowed us to play in their house. (laughs) So I started singing through a trainer TS-10 amplifier. I don't know if you know what that is, but it's a little amplifier that's approximately, you know, 12 inches tall, 15 15 to 20 inches wide. I still have it. And I would bring this in for my vocals. And of course, um, Steve had worked a full season of tobacco and he rolled in with his Marshall stack. So <laughs> I had to compete with that Marshall stack and um, Andy's drums and Fred Schnickty had a really nice bass amp. And I set this little lamp on top of the pool table and I think that's where I ended up getting a powerful voice. Cause I, I really had to project in yeah, order right. to, to get in with that. Come over was... top of these guys. Well, and I find, you know, a lot of us played in those early bands and, and everybody just wanted to be loud and be heard. And no, nobody understood that, you know, dynamics and, and things like that. It was really about, you know, I need my guitar louder. I need, to be heard you know the drummer is always loud and everybody's just kind of creating this big noise so how does it kind of get to the point where i mean could you guys hear each other play or was was the band tight or was it just kind of everybody jamming there we were we were really fortunate we um a couple of us went to a music teacher named john weeb um i don't know if he's still there he was on shade street i think he was in new hamburg and and john was a pretty amazing fellow. I must have been one of his worst students. You know, I I got a bass guitar and I was going to learn how to play bass, but then I found out you have to work at it. And that was horrible. You know, and John looked at me one day and said, you know, Hilliard, he says, I don't, I don't know if you're going to get anywhere unless you get serious about this. And he said, the funny part is, you've got the ability and you have the ear and he said, and you sing really well, but he said, you know, do you think you might want to get serious about this instrument? And I think that's when I realized I was, there was something really wrong with me being able to connect with an instrument at that time. Right. You know, I couldn't, um, I couldn't get where Steve was say, you know, or even when I worked with Fred and Andy, but, once I got to working with them, they said, hey, here's a monophonic keyboard. Um, use this. And I said, well, I don't know chord. They said, you don't have to. This is a one-note keyboard. <laughs> so I would spend time and learn because we did, um, we did some uh, Loverboy tunes, really simple, straightforward single note stuff. And uh, what else did we do? We did a yes tune. And we did um, uh, one Brian Adams tune. And I'd learned very basic keyboard parts. Okay. And that's what connected me to an instrument at that time. Never did I ever become uh, good at playing an instrument, but I can sing the notes and then slowly learn them. And if everyone's patient, eventually I can, I can get that thing done, right? Gotcha. 
And, and how does that carry over today, like in terms of your writing and your arranging? Um, I mean, I've, I've done a little bit of collaborating with you and I know, you know, you can come up with a melody and some great lyrics and, and things like that. And I've heard some of the tracks you do. So are you playing some instruments today when you're recording on your own or writing or are you? I love MIDI. Um, and then I've also just been turned on to uh, a plugin called OVOX. Um, and I can sing whatever I want with OVOX and literally change it into notation um, and even turn it into a MIDI file, you know. So my voice really is what gets me through musically. But if I work hard at it, I can I can definitely get um, what I want from each instrument that I try. So if I need something from the drums, I'll get it. If I need something from the keyboards, I'll get it. Um, I worked with Brent Derner and he said to me, um, hey, you want to play bass? And I said, yep. <laughs> he said, okay. So I went and bought a bass and I learned his album uh, for Decibel and went out and played with uh, Brent Derner and Brian Derner. And um, Helix guy. Yeah, mo most people would have been very intimidated. I was just too stupid to be intimidated. <laughs> you know what I mean? Great. So I would I would sit with Brent and uh, work on parts to songs. And he'd look at me and say, nope, nope, yep. And then I would have such a reaction to actually figuring out the part that he'd laugh. And he'd say, I love it when you find, you know, how to play that piece he, he would giggle at me right like you're, you're funny man so that was kind of a neat experience that was that was how i learned to play as much bass as i know now sure. you know yeah. you know <laughs> i've been looking at you with bewildered thought taking money by a meter for a life it's the way that you you keep me in a trance Like the person that means nothing Nothing at all A walking well-eyed poker Jabs the weak in vain But my doctor says
Hi, this is Hills of the Fog Blues and Brass Band. You're listening to Musicians FAQ on CKMS 102.7 Radio, Waterloo. With your host, Stuart McKee. Well, there's something to be said for that, too, because I know, I mean, you know, I was the same way. I mean, I was never the singing thing for me. It was writing the songs. and you know, there was other people who were much better guitar players. And I thought, man, this is a lot of discipline and hard work and I get distracted easily. But it was the same thing. I could pull what I needed from the instruments. Um, you know, as I've gotten older, I've decided to kind of revisit that and I've gone back and, and really worked on, on being a, on a player. But, um, you know, I, I think what's cool is that you will come up with things that, again, you know, as we were talking about earlier, because nobody's told you what the right way or the wrong way is and you don't maybe have as much of that formal training that you'll come up with things that maybe you know a more schooled musician may not come up with and um and it kind of makes for some more interesting things i think well this is where you know john bailey came into my life in uh when we just left high school basically uh john bailey was still in high school i had started um a rock band with steve uh that was called liar but John um, was really quite musical. Um, his father had made him learn violin early in life, and he had an ear that was amazing, amazing. You know, I, I would look at John and say, you know, Steve um, is playing everything right, but, you know, do you think you could help with the sound? And Steve and John would sit down together and, you know, they'd play with the pickups until Steve had this really incredible guitar sound. And we would go and play places as kids and older guys would come up to Steve and say, what are you playing through, man? And he had a little Ibanez uh, rack mount that um, he would use. And, uh, and people would say, I want to buy that from you. But they didn't really realize that John and Steve together had worked so hard to get this pretty unique sound on the guitar. And that's when we kind of realized John had this amazing gift, you know, uh, and, and now he's probably one of the best engineers in Canada, you know, he's getting Junos for everything right, left and center, you know. <laughs> Even, uh, it's amazing that the people that come into our lives and, and become, you know, the people that stay with us or influence us the most. So um, now was he involved with the recording of, of the Fog album? Yeah, he's he's the engineer and producer, to be honest with you, right. on, on that album. You know, he saved us because in the middle of that album, um, we lost the guitar player and another friend of ours jumped in to fill the spot. Uh, right in the middle of the recording so the original beds were done by one guitar player and then um, Tim uh, Pulser came in to really you know jump in eyes wide shut and uh, John worked with him and they they just uh, created a miracle you know <laughs> it was it was something special that's great yeah well, I mean let's talk about a little bit now about where you are now um you know, I almost feel like this could have been a, a two-part interview and it may end up having to be because um, there's just so much amazing stuff that I'm hearing right now. And I'd love to keep having this conversation, but sort of jumping forward. So when, when was Fog formed and, and when did you make sort of that decision that this is, this is the direction I want to go and this is the band or did it kind of come together accidentally or was it a conscious thing? I think it was 2017, I think. So five, five or six years ago. Um, what happened is I was doing another album with a band called the Jam Blasters, and 
I had um, brought in uh, a guitar player and it worked for a little while and that guitar player left the band. And later on, um, he called me and said, I'm putting a band together and would you consider coming to sing? And I thought, you know, stick with that Tony Robbins thing where it's, you know, don't keep flying and bouncing your head off, uh, you know, the window, fly back and look for the crack and fly through, right? Uh, <laughs> you know, so I My thought words. maybe, <laughs> I thought maybe, no, I'm not going to do that. And I went out and saw the band and I really dug, you know, seeing the bass player and the drummer locked in and it was connected, you know, and I thought that was a good band, you know, maybe I should give it a shot. And then of course he had brought Bobby Becker in at the same time. And I really never played in a band that had a, a good keyboard player. So let's give it a shot. I thought, you know, so yeah, that was, that was the beginning of fog and it, it, uh, it connected. We all connected, you know, it took off and that's why we're here today still. <laughs> Great. And then, so no, what led to the point where you said, had you been out playing quite a bit before the album came along or was the album first or you know it was the first band that i've ever been in where there was no agent involved no one to take this band and set it up with all of its gigs and, and i had never really experienced that before every band that i had been in before someone was you know taking care of business and we, for the life of us, couldn't find a gig. <laughs> you know, we, we were like, wow, like, are we, is there something wrong with us? And uh, one of our friends, Bruce Arnold, uh, broke the barrier for us, the Kitchener barrier. You know, I mean, we, our first gigs were outside in Brampton, uh, the Mohawk we played and a couple of other places, but we couldn't get a gig in town to, you know, if our lives depended on it. And Bruce said, hey, you know, you guys should come and play this Churchill Arms. And we went out to see the Churchill Arms and we thought, wow, how are we going to get seven people in there and, and play without blowing the doors off the place? You know, because everything's, you know, gets louder with more musicians. And uh, we did it. We had a great time and, and Gloria put up with us and she was amazing. And that really did start us off on getting to play back here in, in, in our hometown. You know, every other band I've been in, I've been off touring Canada. Right. And, and not, you know, really playing here at home, except for when we popped into the Highlands or the Cornet or, or, um, you know, stages, like those were the things that we would pop into. So it was a, a totally different way to go at music, a whole learning lesson. So, and I like it, you know, I like it so much that we control everything we do now. Oh. And that's, that's a bonus. It really is. That's great. Yeah. The day of the indie band for sure. Um, so now was that a regular house gig that you guys end up working into or was it just kind of some one-off shows? And then we end up like, we ended up uh, playing there. I, I would say once a month maybe once every two months i can't remember exactly um for about for about a year and a half i think it was and then um there were some really cool people that came in to watch us play who sort of dragged us into some other things and and then a friend of mine rob hain uh called the band and said look i've got some um shows i'm putting together for charity would you guys come and you know sit in on those uh types of gigs so those gigs were nice because rob always would get a big hall to go play so we actually got into uh elements and uh we went out and played at the schwaben club and um where else did we play with him he well, got us got one of the moose lodge gigs too yeah i don't think we did a moose lodge gig with him we did one with uh the ghost town blues band yeah yeah now that was put together by brad marshall oh okay there was a, yeah 
I know yeah. both those guys for years, but um, I, I know I, I was out of that show and it was a great show. I just couldn't remember who had actually organized that one. Well, Brad Marshall has become a real, you know, connection with the band. He's, he's, um, he's the tech, he's the sound and um, he's gone with us the full distance, right? He, he went up to Elk Lake with us. Uh, he's, he's been doing shows with us for the last, I don't know, almost uh, two years, um, which is a real comfort. You know, when you've got someone that's there who knows you inside out, who knows your sound system inside out. Um, and when you're the production of your own, you know, show, um, you have a lot more control. And uh, Brad makes that really easy for us. That's you know, great. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I've done some of those gigs where it's, you know, their sound person and, and their sound system and it's it can just be a nightmare if the person doesn't get the band or if they're really kind of indifferent to the band and you know you're just another band passing through so to have your own your own guys that that's fantastic been listening to another great song by the jam blasters the last time i knew nothing featuring again lead vocals of hills walter this has been musicians faq and i'm your host Stuart mckee please join me next week for part two of our interview with hills walter Thank you for listening to Musicians FAQ Podcast with your host, Stuart McKee. We're here every week with great Canadian musical artists. 